I'm Warren Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas. Welcome back to our continued studies in the Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 8 for this video, Mark chapter 8. I've mentioned in previous classes that Mark documents questions people raised about Jesus. All the way back in chapter 1, what is this? Then in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 41, and then in chapter 6 in Nazareth, in verses 2 and 3, there are five questions raised about Jesus. Among those questions, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done? And many other inquiries. In chapter 8, we're going to discover a powerful statement that is responsive to these questions about Jesus. Mark chapter 8. Have your Bible ready for the read-through with very brief comments from me and then further discussion and takeaway lessons once we complete the read-through of the chapter. Mark 8, 1 through 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves? do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. That's the reading of the first 10 verses in Mark chapter 1. It was 5,000 who were fed earlier, now 4,000. The great pressure of crowds following Jesus in mass became an opportunity for his compassion to be demonstrated once again with miracles. Those miracles constituted proof of who he was. Jesus did not come to solve all the hunger problems in the world forever, but he could not send crowds away hungry or malnourished, thinking they would faint on the way. This time, seven loaves, he gave thanks, a few small fish they ate, 
and were satisfied. Once again, as before, leftovers. Then in the boat with his disciples to the district of Dalmanutha, or in some translations, Magadon or Magdala, still on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, still in that region. Mark 8, 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, went to the other side. So Jesus, continuing his Galilean ministry, is pursued. You might use the word stalked by his enemies. Remember what we learned back in chapter 3, verse 6, they wanted to destroy him. That's their mission. So 5,000 are fed, 4,000 are fed, along with many other miracles, and here come the Pharisees demanding a sign from heaven. Amazing, hard hearts, stubborn unbelief, and it says Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. His response was no sign. He got in the boat and left. Mark 8, 14 through 21. Mark 8, 14 through 21. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take away? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take away? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? I want you to notice in about verse 18 here in Mark 8, two words Jesus used a lot. In some translations, it is take heed, or other translations, watch out. And in the ESV, it says he cautioned them in verse 15. I'll have more to say about all of that after I read through. The disciples are not good at grocery shopping. Verse 14, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to warn his disciples and others who were there and us about the leaven or yeast, the influence, the attitudes of the Pharisees and the Herodians. More about that later, but notice 
the disciples are not getting the point about the Pharisees, not listening with good attention. Perhaps they thought Jesus was saying, don't buy bread from the Pharisees. He was warning them and us about the self-righteous attitudes and hypocrisy of those men. Jesus, again, as he did once before, applied the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing. He referenced the recent miraculous feedings, then turned their attention from physical bread to their hard hearts, concluding, do you not yet understand? We are at verse 22. I'm going to read 22 to 26, another miracle. 22 to 26 in Mark 8. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his house, saying, Do not even enter the village. So back in Bethsaida, north of the Sea of Galilee, a few miles, a man's sight is restored, and then he sent the man to his home. Now we come to that feature. Now we come to that feature of the Gospel of Mark I brought up earlier. Mark has documented all those questions about who Jesus is, where did he get his teaching, how does he do these things. It's all about who he is. So listen now, 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is pivotal. This is an answer about who Jesus is. An answer about who Jesus is. And it's an answer that people are able to understand. Now, if they pay attention to this and take heed, what he taught, his miracles, who he was, it's all answered here. He is the Christ. He's the one God promised in the Old Testament. He is the only begotten Son of God. He's not John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. He is the Christ. That answers so many of the questions Mark documented earlier 
in the Gospel of Mark. And then verses 31 through 38. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, I believe this is a pivotal moment where the confession is made that he is the Christ, answering all those previous questions. Now, what does that mean? What's going to happen next? Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. He identifies, no surprise, his executioners. But after three days, his resurrection. Well, Peter has something to say. Jesus, we need to talk. He takes Jesus aside. Just stop there a moment. Picture that. Play that video in your head. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then came the well-known invitation, Come after me. Follow me. I'll go into that further in just a few moments. That's Mark chapter 8. That's our read-through a pivotal moment in the life of Christ. And mark out now in your Bible, Peter's confession. As a response to all those earlier questions Mark documented about who Jesus was, where he got what he taught, and how he did all these miraculous things. And from here on, we will see Mark document what Jesus said would happen to him in his suffering and death and his resurrection. I'll be right back for our takeaways. So what lessons, what takeaways from Mark chapter 8? I think none of us would act, think, or react as the Pharisees did with their ugly style of bold and direct rebellion. But Jesus wants us to know about them and take with us into our lives a serious sense of caution 
about any of the attitudes underlying the rebellion of the scribes and Pharisees. So here in Mark 8, the disciples were preoccupied with bread, literal, physical food. Jesus wants them to see something that is illustrated by yeast, by leaven. I want you to listen again, 14 to 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, while there is so much in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about these religious leaders, people sometimes inquire, why why do, do these writers spend so much time telling us about the scribes and Pharisees? Why did Jesus bring this up here? These were corrupt political powers, scribes, Pharisees, Herodians. Why give us all this information? Well, it is easy to quickly dismiss this and tell ourselves that we would never be like these evil men. Likely, we would never act with such ugly, bold, and direct rebellion. But there could be some attitudes, some perspectives and tendencies somewhere deep within us that would lead us to that direction that we need to check in our hearts. Let me dig a little deeper. Self-righteousness, that creeping attitude of pride, you recall the expression, holier than thou. That attitude can be very subtle and may never express itself in bold rebellion, but it is spiritually destructive. Just to think we are so great that we have mastered discipleship, that those who have not attained to our level are just ignorant, are spiritually lazy or indifferent, and we look down upon them. When we let ourselves go down that pathway of thought or attitude, while it may never be expressed as homicide like the scribes and Pharisees, it is spiritually destructive. Jesus cautioned them, his disciples, I believe we need to be cautioned. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Growing influence. The word in the NIV is yeast. Yeast slowly rises. We need to check our attitudes and be cautioned 
about the slowly developing self-righteousness that can be destructive to us. Now, we don't want to build a religious empire or write a creed book or kill anybody, but those silent thoughts of self-righteousness and pride are not seen favorably by the Lord. One more thing about Jesus' warning about the Pharisees. If evidence leads to the conclusion that someone is wrong, that's one thing. However, if we simply decide we don't like someone, and then we go in search of evidence to prove what we've already decided, that makes us like the enemies of Jesus. Peter's confession contains several vital lessons. Let's start here. Peter was not perfect. <clears throat> in fact, in this passage, I'm sorry. In this passage, after this confession account, he took Jesus aside to rebuke him. Picture that. We know of other instances of Peter's flaws. God can use flawed people to deliver truth. As a matter of historical fact, God has always used flawed people to deliver the truth every single time, with one exception, Jesus the Christ. I challenge you about this. You've heard many teachers and preachers in your life name one who got into the pulpit, name one who taught a class, who stood before you to teach or preach, who was perfect. None. Nobody raised their hand. In our daily Bible reading, we encounter flawed people in Genesis who nevertheless were used by God to do his will. This doesn't mean their flaws were overlooked, but it's good for us to remember that Peter, the other apostles and early disciples who taught the truth, were flawed people. This doesn't recommend flaws. And when we discover flaws and transgressions, we certainly should seek forgiveness. But it's good to remember flawed people can state the truth, and Peter did particularly filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Let me talk to you now more about that confession. And we've read that in Mark 8. Now I want to go to Matthew 16, 13 through 16. Matthew 16, 13 through 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock 
I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Two things here. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, God used Peter, a flawed man, to announce the truth about Jesus. Peter's mind was not the source. It wasn't that a light came on in Peter's mind and all of a sudden he understood everything and figured everything out. God revealed this to and through Simon Peter. The other thing about this, on this rock I will build my church. The coming kingdom, the church, is mentioned six times in three different contexts. In Mark 9, 1 and 47, Mark 10, 14 and 15, Mark 10, 23 and 24. The foundational truth, who Jesus is. On this rock. When I confess my belief in him, when I repent and I'm baptized by God's grace, I become a citizen in his kingdom, the church. Those who live under the king are citizens of the kingdom. When the terminology changes in the New Testament, those who live under the head of the church are those who compose his church. All right. Much can be said about verses 31 to 38 in Mark chapter 8. Verses 31 to 38. Suffering, rejected, killed. This isn't what the Jews expected in their expectation of the Messiah. This was hard truth for the disciples. Obviously, Peter exhibits that very issue. But as we continue to read and study Mark, what Jesus said comes to pass in very dramatic ways. And he is taken to the cross, then raised from the dead. So Peter rebukes Jesus. And note Jesus' response. Get behind me, Satan. Very strong words. The severest of rebukes, one commentator said. Here's the deal. When the Son of Man says something is necessary, when the Son of Man says, I must suffer, anyone getting in the way or suggesting otherwise is playing into the hands of Satan. Jesus said, this must happen. Peter was a slow learner, like many of us, perhaps more vocal than the others who were equally skeptical. Let's talk about what it means to follow Jesus. Listen carefully. What it means to follow Jesus. It is more than just baptism, though baptism is necessary. It is more than just coming to a building, though worship with Christians is necessary. It is more than just defending the faith, though that is necessary. It is more than just daily Bible reading, though reading God's Word is certainly necessary. Following Jesus, discipleship, look at this passage, self-denial. You disown or renounce your life to live your life for him and in him, Jesus Christ.
losing my life for his sake. Once I start following Christ, it is about him and the gospel, not me and my earthly life. Refusing ill-conceived efforts to gain the world. To follow Christ means you are no longer seeking to gain what the world offers. You have a higher purpose. Not being ashamed of what the Lord said. One sign of spiritual weakness or spiritual death is to be ashamed of the gospel. I leave you with this from Romans 1.16. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I hope this study of Mark chapter 8 has been as beneficial to you as it was to me in preparing the study. I'm Warren Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ. Thank you for viewing this video.